This episode of Radio Atlantic is brought to you by Microsoft Copilot for Security. In the age of AI, we're empowering security teams to better detect and better defend cyber threats. Stay tuned to find out how. For many of us, pop culture is an escape. Primetime sitcoms, summer jams, blockbuster movies, these are the things we retreat to when we need to take a break from the stresses of everyday life. But what do you do when your pop culture icons announce their political affiliations? Is politics ruining pop culture? This is Radio Atlantic. Hi, I'm Matt Thompson, executive editor of The Atlantic, and with me here in D.C. is my esteemed co-host, Jeffrey Goldberg, editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Matt. I am delighted to say that we are joined today by our regular guests on Radio Atlantic, Megan Garber. Hello. And Jillian White. Hey. Hello to you both. And thank well, you one was us. ambivalent and one was not. That's all I can say. <laughs> Listener, you choose. <laughs> We convene today, as usual, around a question. Is politics ruining pop culture? <laughs> Gone are the days, if these days ever existed, when you get home from work, you kick off your shoes, you turn on your prime time, escape from the worries of the wider world. In America, at least, political polarization is now ubiquitous. You can't listen to Kanye West without picturing him in a Make America Great Again cap. You can't watch Roseanne without knowing that she's spreading conspiracy theories on Reddit. You can't watch The Simpsons without confronting the problems with Apu. And we may not be able to have comedians perform at the White House Correspondents' Dinner again. Oh, my God. It's the end of the world as we know it. Very well no be. more comedians at the White House Correspondents' <laughs> Association Dinner. Megan, I wanted to point the first question to you. You write about culture, and so I'm hoping you can you can take the long view on this. Let me stipulate, first of all, that pop culture has always been political. Mm-hmm. Wait, can I just do something before we start? Yeah. I want to promise the listener that if they stay with us through this episode, that I'm going to have a small, semi-amusing Kellyanne Conway at the White House Correspondents Association dinner story at the very end. <laughs> Just saying. All right. What a treat. All yeah, right. exactly. This is going to exactly. be our, our start of the episode. Yeah, uh, there you go. I'm ready. I'm gearing it up. So, Megan, you write about culture, but I want to ask you to take the long view on this. And stipulating that pop culture has always been political. Mm-hmm. Is it more politically fraught than it's been in our lifetimes now? Or is it just me? No, I think it is more – I think it's more overtly politically fraught is what I would say. I think it's more partisan than political. So I think we're very aware of partisanship as an identity at this point. And I think that that's true for creators as well as for viewers and uh, audiences of culture. So I think we're very sort of hyper-attuned to our uh, political identity and the party sense of it. But in terms of the politics, I think, like you said, it's always been this way. And I think now we're just actually recognizing what's always been true, which is pop culture has always made assumptions about the way the world works and, you know, ideas of politics and ideas of justice and ideas of empathy and attention and who deserves all of that. So it's actually kind of refreshing in some ways to see that be more openly on the table at this point, I think. Yeah. Now, Jillian, in our pages, we've been debating implicitly, several writers at The Atlantic have been debating this question of what is our responsibility as consumers of culture? to consume voraciously, widely, diversely? And what is our responsibility to pop culture by artists that we may have political disagreements with? 
I mean, I think the interesting thing about pop culture and about entertainment in general is that your responsibility really kind of only lies with yourself. Um, I think it requires you to ask yourself what's important to you and who is that reflected in and what are you trying to accomplish when it comes to the culture and art and entertainment that you consume. So I think the thing that makes people uncomfortable in this moment is that we now have this much more vast body that we know about the entertainers that we consume. You can see their Twitter and see what they're saying. You can see their off-the-cuff comments at 2 o'clock in the morning. You know what they wear when they go to the grocery store. You have this entire body of information about them that you didn't have before. And oftentimes that (laughs) reveals some stuff that really is at odds with what you believe or what you feel or what you think. And then you have the responsibility of saying, okay, well, do I want to support them? And do I want to be complicit in them continuing down that line? And then you have to ask yourself, okay, so if I don't, how do I handle that? And I think one of the ways that Americans have always thought about rejecting people or rejecting an idea or rejecting a company or rejecting something that they don't like is through economic power. So at the point where you decide that somebody represents something that you don't want to be a part of, you can decide not to go to their concerts, not to go to their shows, not to buy their art. So I think that's kind of the point that we're at. It's going to be very boring culture, isn't it, in the future? Say more. Say more? Why is it going to be boring? No, I think that was about all I have to say. For well, well, why is it going to be boring? Well, I'm, see, I, so, no, 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 no. So I've been thinking about this as an old you know, All right. um, and I was thinking about every every single show I watched in the 70s uh, is what's the term the kids use today? Problematic. <laughs> You're fired, Jeff. Uh, yeah, no, that's right. I just violated. <laughs> I violated the know. first rule. You should know that Jeff has uh, sta- laid down at the outset of this conversation the, the edict that the word problematic. No, but I put it in scare quotes, didn't I? I found it. Good. I thought it was. Sounded, I don't know if the sounded, listeners heard this. Here. Sounded pretty <laughs> scary to me. Um, no, it's it is interesting that that uh, if you think about everything that uh, that filled the the minds of people my age and even younger uh, in the seventies and eighties, it's it's all. <laughs> It's got problems everywhere you look. It's got race problems. It's got chauvinism problems. It's got general misogyny problems. It's got cruelty problems. It's got it's got problems. I'm not I'm not arguing that the stuff is not flawed. I'm just observing the fact that we are going to be we're in a process where it seems at the beginning of expunging um, a lot of the cultural past. I actually reject the idea that that means that we're going to have kind of a bland cultural experience from here on out. I think. People make those decisions for themselves, right? So I think problematic in the first place is an interesting it's way. It's problematic. To, with, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a problem. But I think when you say somebody's problematic, it kind of intimates that there is a potential solution, right? So when you're asking yourself where you're drawing these lines about what types of culture and entertainment you consume, you can say, for instance, that you didn't like what Kanye West said and you think that he needs to go read a book and maybe sit down for a little bit, but that doesn't mean you're not going to listen to his albums Mm. because at the end of the day, who is he really hurting, right? That is a line that you can draw and say that you're still going to consume his art. However, you maybe draw a line at somebody who has been accused of or convicted of rape. Maybe that is problematic in a different way. And I think that's why lumping all of these people under the title of problematic is in itself problematic. Well, there's two, there's, there's a couple of different problems here. I mean, there's the, there's the problem brought about by me too. And the things we know about, I mean, you're referring before to this idea that we know so much about people from their Instagram. We also know so, so much about people because, uh, 
women now have talked about some of these people and how bad they are. And so there's a category that's easier for me to sort of dismiss, which is the uh, I don't want to watch Kevin Spacey and Usual Suspects anymore, even though uh, I like that movie, because I don't want to look at Kevin Spacey anymore. Um, that's that's one side of it. It's And maybe maybe these all things are all on a continuum, but I think that's a fairly clear category. And I think that's as interesting as, as this other category, to tell you the truth. I don't know what Megan... It's actually a separate question for Megan in a way, which is, you know, do we throw out the art with the artist or is it just a natural human response not to want to watch the Huxtables anymore? Okay, well, I'm going to try to skirt that question just a little because I think it's so difficult. Um, uh, but I would like to complicate it with one more level, which is I think one of the things that came out with the reporting about Me Too is how structural all of these problems are. You know, so it's Kevin Spacey, but it's also that network of people who protected him for all that time. You know, and and it, it seems like we everybody's shitty. <laughs> I mean, yeah. kind of. I, I don't want to. You know, there's certainly there's a distinction between. Kevin Spacey and that network. But there is a level of everyone was a little bit complicit, or at least a lot of people were a little bit complicit. And to make a piece of culture, especially the kinds that we're talking about, which is TV shows and movies and music and things like that, it, it's a network of people. It's not just the one artist. I think sometimes we um, yeah. can fixate a little too too much on, you know, this notion of the auteur. That is actually, that. you so are it, it actually, hard to, yeah. you are making an argument about my question, which is, is, that it's not the individual that you can you can take the culture for what it is and understand that everything from the period in which that culture was made was was a problem. Right. I think that's what you're saying. I, kinda, I don't know. Well, I'm I'm avoiding your question a little bit because it's such a good one, but it's also because it's. I mean, these are questions that have come up right in literature with like formalism and like in law with you know originalism in the Supreme right. Court. Like there are these sort of age old questions that we haven't successfully answered. So I, yeah, I think it's hard to answer it. I also think that there are two distinct phenomena here and they don't need to really overlap all that much both of them yes are about the question of who are you going to support with your culture consumption mm -hmm. um but it's a different circumstance to talk about kevin spacey or bill cosby mm -hmm. um and who you know i think you can who just you know and just acts of criminal evil <laughs> um and to talk on the other hand, about the artists who you disagree right. with, right? right? Artists who have come out and expressed a political affiliation that you do not share. You can sever those two things, I think, fairly cleanly and, you know, be just grossed out by the the former and then still. Is there anyone in your life who you like as an artist who you just don't like as a person because of their views? Like, have you stayed loyal to someone's art even as you sort of dismiss the person? I can't think of I can't think of any. I mean, I think the in in some ways the more that the matter of someone's personal deficiencies and flaws escapes into my perception of them, even looking in it some crowds on it screen. Out. Yeah, it's Jillian. Hard. What about you? I'm trying to think. I feel like I mean, besides Ted Nugent, obviously. <laughs> I know you're a huge Ted Nugent fan. No, I mean, I think the thing that's happened for me uh, more frequently is that music or a movie or culture has i've revisited it years later and realized how deeply problematic it is um or how dangerous or how homophobic or how racist or how misogynistic it is and then i face the question of do i continue supporting this artist um for me i mean dmx is a great example of that 
as is Dipset and a bunch of other rappers. You know, when you listen to the music that they made in the 90s and the early 2000s, it is stuff that I wouldn't want played sometimes around people that I love because there's a lot of offensive, especially homophobic um, language well, in that. <laughs> Jillian's trolling me a little bit because she knows that I adore DMX um, and she's trying to provoke me into actually doing this, my DMX I, no, impersonation. This is, this is I think, a thing that which, we share. as they say, is problematic. Yeah. I mean, that that is a love that we share. But, but, but Jeff, aren't you sort of acting hypocritically against the values of free expression by not doing your DMX impression right now? No, you know what? We're a big do tent, it, but we're not that big. It. How about that? How about that? <laughs> Can you still call yourself a decent person if you don't <laughs> do your DMX impersonation. You know, you're going to make right me lose now. my mind. Up right in here. Approximately right here, oh, you're so going to make me lose we're so close. my mind. But, I mean, let's not make it abstract for a second. And let's talk about Kanye, since he sure, is the subject of the moment. Let's do um, it. And I think this is... Wait, what... he's the subject of the moment? I thought the demise of democracy was the subject of the moment. Well, I mean... <laughs> he's the, a symptom the of two, the demise of democracy. The two are inseparable okay. at this Just point, checking. Right? Just checking. Just um, checking. So, Kanye, a rapper whose music I have loved for a long time. One of my favorite Kanye songs all falls down. My favorite version of it, in fact, is the version that I think he played at a concert with... Uh, acoustic set with John Legend in like St. Louis back in the day where Kanye was rapping over John Legend playing the piano and singing the hook to All Falls Down. It all falls down. There's a story about this girl I know. I promise she's so self-conscious. She had no idea what she was doing in college. That major that she majored in don't make no money. But she won't drop out her parents to look at her funny. Now, tell me that ain't insecure. The concept of school seems so secure. Sophomore three years ain't picked the career. She like, fuck it, I'll just stay down her and do hair. Cause that's enough money to buy her a few pairs of new ass. Her baby daddy don't really care. She's so precious with the peer pressure couldn't afford a car so she named her daughter Alexis she had hair so long that it looked that song 10 years ago was just a bold consumerist critique all falls down right we shine because they hate us floss because they degrade us we're trying to buy back our 40 acres and for that paper look how low we assume and I'm just gonna stop right there yep it's hard. Wow, wait, wait, I want to do that again. It's hard not to go back and listen to All Falls Down and hear a little bit of Bill Cosby's Pound Cake speech in it, which Uh-oh. is notorious. Uh oh. Right? Uh, Kanye's talking about the woman who couldn't afford a car, so she named a daughter Alexis. And 10 years ago, he's on <laughs> it's her a good side. line, by the way. Right? <laughs> it really ten, is. But, ten, but ten, it's, a, it's a better line, it's a funnier line if you feel like he's on her side. It's a less funny line if you feel like he's making fun of her. So the song is entertaining, but it's also straightforwardly political. And I think it's completely legitimate if learning more about Kanye's political affiliations now tinges how you feel about his music back in the day. And if you say, "Eh, this is not so much for me, the troubling aspects of this are drawn out by what I now know about this artist. But honestly, my favorite thing to come out of this whole Kanye West business is the discovery of this new artist, a young woman named Chica Oranika, who started 2018 by announcing on her Twitter feed 
that we would all know her name by the end of the year and who is now blowing up because she recorded a response to Kanye over the beat of his track Jesus Walks that is complete and utter fire. Take a listen to a second of this. Us. How you say you Jesus, but did nothing to restore us. You support the people up in power that abhor us. I don't give a fuck about your clothes or your wife's new naked pose or the fact that you can stand for what the people all oppose. It's not a cross you had to take up. I just pray to God that one day you can wake up. I mean, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, on the other hand, uh, we have our colleague Connor Friedersdorf wrote about uh, Roseanne. Another and the controversy. famous rapper. Another famous rapper. You know, uh, uh, I can't come up with a rap yeah, no, Connor. <laughs> by the way, Connor Friedersdorf's name is immune to rapization, yeah. by the way. You know, C.F. Dorf. Doesn't work. Frito C. Yeah. Oh, Frito. Something with Frito. Frito? Yeah. All right. Go on. Um, so Connor wrote about um, uh, Roseanne and the controversy over uh, over Roseanne. He wrote a piece called How Roseanne Divides the Left. He juxtaposes two points of view on uh, on culture. Quote, in one telling art transcends politics and wrongheaded political beliefs are most constructively met with tolerant engagement, which is ultimately a liberalizing force. In the other telling, this is a moment when art must be judged according to its political content and shunning that which is problematic is, quote, a start toward defending it, more or less the strategy that former Vice President Dan Quayle once tried against Murphy Brown. So, you know, I think you can almost even tell in this passage how Connor feels about um, which side represents a, a more um, societally uh, constructive approach to art and culture making. Um in that we should engage with the things that we disagree with, that we should. Um, but I guess my question is, how should that play into pop culture, the stuff that we consume, what entertains us? Well, I think, I mean, it's interesting how we think about pop culture at this point in terms of morality almost. I mean, you, you know, you have the, the concept of the guilty pleasure, which is something that you, you know, you know you shouldn't watch, but you do anyway, which I would say for me, that's about 70% to 80% of the watching that I do. And I think that's probably true for Same. a lot of people. Um, but I wonder if that's the wrong approach in some ways um, because pop culture should be entertaining first and foremost. You know, it should be um, – you should like it on some level. And I I very much agree that, you know, you shouldn't turn something off just because there's one element of it that you don't like. Like it's good to be open-minded and open-hearted about what you consume. But I would say on the other end – I don't think you have to force yourself to watch something that you don't want to or that's going to make you uncomfortable because there are so many other choices out there. You know, Roseanne is such an interesting case because, you know, I, I watched Roseanne a lot when I was growing up, but it was one of the few shows that you could watch because there just weren't that many shows to watch. Yeah. Um, and I think now that's not the case anymore. You know, for the most part, you can watch so much stuff and read so much stuff and it changes things. But the interesting thing is not the people who turn off the thing that they just don't like, which is a normal reaction. The interesting thing is the sort of almost fundamentalist approach of, I don't like this, so therefore you can't like it either, and I'm going to judge you morally based on your decision to like this. And that, I mean, that is, even among atheists and progressives, that is a deeply religious impulse, a purifying impulse. And that's what, that's what's 
problematic about <laughs> the culture today is that the deep desire of, of 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 people to tell other people and this is a libertarian streak in me coming out deep desire need of people to tell other people what they should consume and what they shouldn't consume anyway yeah and i think i mean interestingly i think you're right that that impulse is one that's existed for a long time and it's more of a it's Since more of a puritanical yeah. uh, more religious impulse almost than otherwise purification yeah for for uh, for years, for decades, for as long as you know, I can remember, um, the Family Research Council has um, offered movie reviews to evangelical Christian families to say, "Here are movies that we sanction that you c- can feel comfortable taking your." Did you kids grow to. up watching movies according to what the Family Research Council? Oh said? yeah, when the Passion of the Christ came out, which by the way, Tough. not Tough. a family friendly movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But when the Passion Tough. of the Christ came out, that was aired in you know we had screenings of it in my school in you know several families had what was the first over. movie you saw that the family research council hated uh oh gosh that's a good question um I mean, probably a lot. Like, I don't think Titanic. The, I, don't, I don't think that the Family Research Council folks really like liked the Smurfs all that much, or like wow. Rainbow Bright. So, oh, really? oh right. Wow. Wait, were the Smurfs gay or something? Is that um, the, the thing? Well, there are kind of challenges within some strains of uh, of, of uh, Smurfology about no, just about fantasy generally. I mean, oh, right, like, right. You know, right. the Care Bears project energy out of their stomachs, which has. Uh, <laughs> like, I mean, who among us? And not, I know, wish I could. Project energy out of my stomach. But this is this is the thing. Like you know, for a, there is within that community, um, there is a vetted a vehicle for them enforcing what um, what media, what pop culture even aligns with their. Which, values. by the way, is absolutely fine because it's voluntary. It's totally fine, right? right? I mean, we can and, and and everything about this conversation, thank God, still is more or less voluntary. But would it be bad if like? You know, there was a queer version of that. If like uh, the human rights campaign were um, were offering reviews of movies that uh, that it felt had positive depictions of queer characters, nothing particularly wrong with that. I mean, it's just I think the flip the the, the even though it implies a judgment of. I mean, Perhaps I believe in free goers. speech. People should talk about whatever they want to talk about. I, I think the 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 harder part of this comes in the sort of uh, preening moral judgments of people who don't share your cultural tastes. You know that that's the but but I don't think there's anything wrong with a positive guide to people say, hey, this is culture that you might like and and consume it accordingly. I don't know. Yeah. Where this probably gets the pop cultural re- realm, where this gets most acute, is probably comedy. Um, <laughs> Good transition. <laughs> Welcome, Michelle Wolf. <laughs> I mean, let's talk about it, right? Wait, are um, you know, are we fulfilling some sort of inside the Beltway stereotype by talking about it four days after the event this, when everybody's supposed to have moved on already? I, I mean, I will say that this is not a new co- conversation for us, right? Or, uh, last year, we published a cover story about. Uh, Alec Baldwin's depiction of the president, right. asking about the role of satire in playing into the right. conditions about we uh, that we all. Uh, I mean, the Michelle Wolf story is a story about uh, well, it's about uh, uh, structural problems. Um, you can't take a comedy club and move it inside an event that's half or a, a, a third Kiwanis, a third high school graduation, a third First Amendment discussion, um, and then impose Michelle Wolf on it without 
consequence. So that was a that's the structural issue there, I think, and that that means that the dinner needs to be rethought. But there's nothing that Michelle Wolf said um, that was uh, outrageous by the standards of mainstream American comedy today. The only thing that was outrageous, quote unquote, outrageous, was that one of her victims was there in front of her. Invited by the group and then and then publicly humiliated by Which a comic. Which is also structural, right? Well, of course it's structural. It's like the you, format I mean, of the, well, the, the problem yeah. is the problem is you don't invite somebody to dinner and then and then publicly humiliate them. That's just manners, um, and especially when you know you 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 want this person there, Sarah Sanders. And again, this is not a commentary on Sarah Sanders and her relationship to the truth and democracy and the free press and the First Amendment. But that was the 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 the, the fatal flaw was what do you think is going to happen when you put Sarah Sanders and Michelle Wolf in a room and give Michelle Wolf a mic. Like what 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 do you think? I'm not blaming the White House Correspondents Association. They're in a tough spot. And 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 they obviously they had good intentions but they didn't think through this problem. But anyway, but that was my well, that was my spiel. I, I think maybe the Thank thing you. they didn't think Thank you through very much. is that I got, a, I got a thumbs up from Megan, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe the thing that they didn't think through is that perhaps in these supercharged times, a roast is not the proper mm-hmm. format. No, that's what I mean. I, mean. I mean, you know, you, you like, know, there's always a lag. That's what happens there's always all the lag. time, though, yeah. right? Like, it's always been a roast. It's always been about somebody essentially... Uh, well, it's not been quite so roasty. Right, yeah. I mean, I agree it hasn't <laughs> been as roasty toasty. Yeah, but... And I, don't even know, and I don't even know if I agree with that. What? What? That, it's, that it hasn't, hasn't been, been as roast? I mean, I no, think... No, it wasn't like that. I think in general... The sense has always been, this is a little uncomfortable. This no, is Colbert, take- I was there in yeah. Colbert in 2006. It was squeamish. Right. It's you know. always been a little, you're taking some tough shots at a person who's sitting, you know, six feet away from you. This is, this is a little I, And I thought that tough. that was always part of the point, is right. that is mm-hmm. the theater of, a of you know, America's political leaders on stage being made fun of mm-hmm. and taking it. Right. But yeah. the problem is Sarah Sanders is not America's leader. I would have been absolutely fine Donald right. Trump being up there and having Michelle Wolf eviscerate him, but he's the elected leader of the United States and I just it was it was the people people assume that a lot of people in the audience were squeamish or prudish or whatever there was a particular dynamic that people don't understand which is that you're watching a woman whether you have sympathy for her or not and by the way for the first time ever a lot of people in that room had a modicum of sympathy for Sarah Sanders so that counts as a win for Donald Trump by the way uh, but there was the, the feeling was wait a second these these jokes are fine but don't like don't throw this woman out a window. She she happened to come to your dinner. Everything else was fine, and, you know. And the jokes. Well, Megan was there. She can give you her view. Yeah. No. I mean, similar. I think the lack of mutuality was it was what really felt weird about it because she was not there to defend herself. She, I mean, she was sitting there, but she didn't actually get to speak. And right. you know, the tradition is that the president gives it and gets it. You right. know, right. And, and so there was the lack of that. Um, but one thing I would add to this, um, just to to zoom out uh, from the Washington Hilton on uh, <laughs> Saturday a little bit. I mean, I've I've found it really interesting how we turn to comedy for truth telling. Yeah. You know, in this age of mistrust in so many different institutions, we look to comedy to to do what journalism. Well, the less you can say earnestly, the more the comics have to say joke, quote unquote, jokingly. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I think that's true. But we I mean, I think we we look to comics almost just to to tell us the truth about the world we live in. And we don't really trust anyone else to do it um, in ways that we used to. And I think the dinner gets to that where we everyone sort of said Michelle Wolf was the person who was telling the truth. You right. know about that dinner and in, in yeah. that room, and that's that's a striking turn of and events. And by the way, yeah. she was. Yeah, and maybe I, not the way we would tell it, but she was. I think yeah. for that reason, comedy is also the arena that 
that gets obsolete quickest where huh. the the norms change and you realize it you cringe at the joke sometimes <laughs> and then you go back and you listen to Eddie Murphy raw delirious in the 80s oh my god i just did that recently hmm. i forgot that it was totally homophobic right right <laughs> totally yes. despite the fact that he's up on stage in the tightest and i went to the red shows. outfit that you can I, possibly... I i that part i did not notice i'll give you that but um but i i did, that's a perfect example for this discussion which is like that was hysterical i used to go see those shows live right um and now it's just not funny <laughs> yeah aids Remember the the he he he, yes. he, he had yeah. twenty minutes on AIDS as as hysterical. Right. Yes. It was amazing, and it's not. By the way, it's not his fault because we can't we can't submit him to the to the harsh judgment of presentism. I can't go back thirty years and judge him by today's standards. You could say that he was certainly not progressive, but he was in the mainstream of the way Americans talked about the issue. But it just it just so that's what I meant by my first point about the TV that I watched forty years ago. Um, it's just like. It's just not good because culture has moved forward. Right. You know, well, like, it's I not think, like we have to throw it out. It's like yeah. I don't even want to watch it. And yeah. I think this yeah. goes back to the point that I was making about music, which is that sometimes when I listen to things that I listened to when I was a teenager in my early 20s, I cringe now and I'm like, ugh, that is so uncomfortable. You shouldn't be saying that. That's unacceptable. But You can't enjoy it anymore. Well, I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't listen to it on repeat. I certainly wouldn't listen to it out loud anymore. But I also don't judge those artists necessarily by today's standards for music that they right. made 20 years mm-hmm. ago. Yeah. Right. If yeah. they came out today and made a similar song, well, people, I would have a problem with it. We ha- we do believe, right? Uh, we allegedly believe as a society, we certainly believe as journalists, that people change and grow. Uh, the Joy Reid controversy, not to introduce a whole other meme here, but, right. but you know, put aside the fact that she's probably BSing us about the, the, the you know, the, the, what do you call it? Uh, what, what what was her argument? The, that um, she was hacking? hacked. That she yeah. was hacked. Put aside the issue of whether she was hacked. Um, what we as a society sometimes do for people and sometimes don't is say, well, you changed. You're no longer the person that you were. Um, and so there is some forgiveness, but it nevertheless doesn't make the stuff that you used to listen to pleasant. But right. And here's, here's what I see as the flip side of all of this. I think that's good. I think mm-hmm. that the creative destruction, there is a th- such a thing as creative destruction when it comes to pop culture, too. And I think that's a natural part of the process, just the way that old songs sound like part of their era. Old jokes sound like part of their era. And you can. It is a little bit hard to listen to DMX now. <laughs> but you can, you can. I mean, nine out of ten songs. There's, there's, there's usually one. His, the DMX Christmas special is fine. It's great. <laughs> but you can start to fold in other culture. Into uh-huh. your diet. They, yeah. That's just the natural way of things. New yeah. musicians discover new sounds and they invent new songs and we like them. <laughs> um, this is very important because Jillian is allowing me to actually DJ her wedding. Um, so I'm programming. Really, I'm Jillian? Pro- I'm programming absolutely all. Absolutely not true. I am programming. I, I know I'm programming. Spend that on a podcast. I got two hours. Two hours of music. I just want to be on the record saying that is I'm not true. I'm two hours. I got the, I got Sounds the problematic. <laughs> DJ problematic in the house. <laughs> Stick with us. In a moment, we'll talk about what you do when your pop culture is problematic. We're entering a new era of security. Cyber threats are escalating rapidly. 
And while tech alone can't eliminate every threat, it can empower security teams to quickly respond to incidents at scale. Microsoft is transforming the industry by innovating to arm teams with the resources necessary to outpace adversaries and operate at machine speed. Microsoft Copilot for Security, powered by generative AI, works alongside defenders. Stay tuned to learn more about Copilot's capabilities after the episode. All of us, for one reason or another, have had the experience of falling out of love with a piece of entertainment or an entertainer that we once were fans of. So I asked several members of our team here at The Atlantic the question, who or what have you fallen out of love with and what have you found in their place? I think that Kanye West as an artist is incredibly difficult to enjoy given his comments on Twitter and the interview with TMZ that he gave this past week. Um, He said things like 400 years of slavery was a choice. Uh, And I think his support of Donald Trump, no matter where you stand politically, um, indicates that he is an artist that feels no level of responsibility to his listeners or the responsibility that he feels to this quote unquote free thought absolves him of a responsibility to communicate with his listeners um, or fans in a way that is constructive. Kanye West has always been an artist that has talked about politics up until and before uh, the George Bush doesn't care about black people comment in the wake of Hurricane Katrina in 2005. But now it feels like his desired level of autonomy outranks him making commentary that is constructive in this space um, and saying something that is just like factually incorrect in an era where um, facts are under assault, like 400 years of slavery was a choice and drawing on all of the the kind of pain and brutality that came out of that system and still exists today, I think was incredibly irresponsible. And so the person that I would replace him with, given the fact that he has carried the mantle for Chicago for so long is Chance the Rapper, because while faulty, he is someone who has tried to use his platform in really in- intentional ways for the betterment of Chicago politically, socially and on a music platform. So probably a couple of months ago, I had had a rough couple of days at work and it had just been sort of bad news cycle after bad news cycle. And I was looking for some relief. I figured I'd turn on a trashy movie and Fifty Shades Darker was suggested to me. Um, so I thought, I'll turn this on. It'll be funny. And I lasted about five minutes. Um, essentially, the main character starts a new job. And there's sort of this shot of her talking to her new boss. And uh, talking about how th- she asks her, he says something like, you look nice. Are you going out tonight? Um, And then she says she is. They have a brief chat and she walks away and the camera sort of shows him watching her walk away in a very suggestive way. And I just felt my stomach sink um, because it sort of felt like they were setting up for some sort of sexual harassment or maybe workplace romance plotline. I don't know because they turned it off. And that was the first time I realized that it was really starting to affect me, the culture that I consumed and sort of the Me Too era. I think the thing that I've kind of had to give up to some extent is House of Cards, uh, the Netflix original, Uh, and in particular, Kevin Spacey's character. 
Uh, Kevin Spacey, obviously, uh, is problematic himself right now with accusations going back decades. Uh, he's kind of retreated from the public stage. Uh, but I think what got me more is that his character on House of Cards uh, was really interesting in the beginning, especially for his duplicity. Uh, Frank Underwood was a career politician, very suave, had this kind of like good old boy attitude around him, utterly fake, was it entirely a masquerade uh, just to advance him politically. And that was fascinating to see him take on the mask, take off the mask. Uh, but now seeing that Kevin Spacey himself has been living with the mask for some time, um, that takes a little bit of the joy out, even asides from the whole concept of House of Cards being a bit ridiculous in the current political climate. And I honestly haven't been able to find a show to replace that in my life. Uh, you know, Veep doesn't really do the same thing. Uh, Scandal wasn't something that I'm really looking to go back and bone up on. I don't have a uh, you know political thriller with intrigue that feels appropriate right now. So I think like a lot of stuff that I haven't been able to enjoy as much anymore is work of artists whose um, professional lives and personal lives are sort of um, there's there's sort of a blurred line between them. So like, for example, the work of Aziz Ansari, the work of um, Bill Cosby, um, R. Kelly, folks who, you know, sort of in their work appear themes that um the allegations that have come out in their personal lives are quite related to, right? So Aziz Ansari and R. Kelly and Louis C.K., they like often, you know, in their work, uh, talk about romance and dating and love. And, you know, that's kind of where um, things have come up in their uh, in, in the news about them. So I, I really can't see their work anymore without thinking of all those other things. Like there's no way for me to compartmentalize the two. I think there's been this process sort of organically happening in my life where I've been creating my own canon. Um, and I've been sort of like clearing the table of all of these people that, you know, you you sort of took for granted as being the masters in whatever field that they were in. Um, and then trying to search for just new artists faces voices and in that process for example like let's say netflix i've been looking gravitating a lot more towards um women anti-heroes like really interesting complex portrayal of women so um shows where you'd see traditionally see like this brooding detective with like problems in his like personal life like i've i've seen women do that role really interestingly like for uh so the fall the killing um uh, in terms of anti-heroes, I've also really enjoyed Jessica Jones, which has a like a an array of really interesting women characters. Um, apart from that, I think, you know, I've made a Spotify list of like women-only artists, old and new, and I've been really enjoying going through like a re-education uh, of, of everything that I've sort of, the same genres of music that I've always listened to, but like um, kind of doing them over and from this new perspective. Um, and then I think I, I actually right before this, I, I counted I've read 10 books this year and so far and eight of them have been by women, mostly women of color. One has been by a white man. So I, I feel like there's that like that process is sort of, you know, slowing off of layers has already started happening. And I think I became much more intentional about it this year. When I was a teen, I was super into emo music. All of those bands from the mid-2000s, like Taking Back Sunday, Brand New, Jimmy Eat World, Dashboard Confessional, all of that was extremely my jam. Uh, 
And as I was sort of listening to it more recently, just nostalgically, um, it was kind of shocking how bad some of the lyrics were. Obviously, that was like a subculture that had a lot of, um, you know, hyperbole and aggression and things like that. And I did remember that, but I didn't realize how um, overt the misogyny was sometimes. Um, there's a lot of subtle misogynist dynamics and tons of music, right? But like, there's a fallout boy lyric that is literally... Um, wear me like a locket around your throat. I'll weigh you down. I'll watch you choke. You look so good in blue. Um, so it is overt, like it is overt. And so that's been really hard to think about how that might have like affected me as a kid because I loved it so much and I didn't really think about it critically. Um, and I still, I still do listen to it and I still do enjoy it because it reminds me of like being a kid and, and, um, it's very nostalgic in that way. But it also has this sort of undercurrent of just dynamics that I guess were, were always, um, around me that I didn't notice. I think emo kind of ended, you know, it's, it's sort of bounded in time, right? But there's, um, actually a big, like, swell right now of um women-led rock bands and like women rock singers who are doing very like emotional writing and it is this like very smart precise um analysis of relationships and emotions and i've been super into that so that's like um waxahachie lucy dacus snail mail um mitski all of these bands and, and singers that sort of hit the same notes or can hit you in the same way, but um, it's obviously a very different perspective. And I think it's just like really smart and and really affecting. So that's what I would recommend. Awesome. From Julie Beck. Um, one of the specific shows, Megan, you'd mentioned that sitcoms, you know, when Roseanne first aired, it was in a context where we had just the network shows basically to choose from, the network lineup. Um, but that we that we're in a world where series are flourishing of every shape and size there's some things i even know if we call them sitcoms anymore yeah like atlanta yeah totally it's so experimental and yeah well and and one thing too i i've i mean to pivot off of what julia was saying you know rom-coms are just as a genre they are a problem (laughs) and they have been for so long and i think now back to what i grew up with really you know what i was told was normal when it came to romance and it's so troubling now and i i I try to be aware of it but i also feel like it must have affected me in some way to have grown up you know being told that this was the way things were done what's an example of a now bad rom-com that was once good i mean so many um i well we don't need to get into this debate this has been a big debate at the atlantic you guys know what i'm gonna say we're gonna have a special issue on a special episode uh, moving Love, right along. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, really? Yeah. <laughs> Worst movie ever made. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yes. <laughs> Lenny Riebenstahl made that no. There is a lot competing for that title. It's, well, it's not a good movie. There's a lot wrong with that movie. Oh there's, a there's a lot Except wrong. Except there's a really movie. adorable Cold, child octopus. So. Sure. No, it, he wasn't. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Well, we didn't mean to go down this rabbit hole. So go there's on. also, I mean, there there are so many. I mean, it's hard to think but of one that actually is good, you know, in some ways. Even like the 
movie Hitch, for example, um, which stars Will Smith. When I first saw it, I loved it. I was like, what a wonderful, charming movie. It does not hold up at all. It begins, he plays a love doctor who coaches men how to get women. Mm. It begins with a line about if she tells you she's not interested, just keep pushing. She's probably lying. And it goes on and on and on like this. It's kind of horrifying. Um, but on a more positive note, I think there are so many new entries in sitcoms, in movies, in literature, etc., um, that really are part of the rom-com genre that are very untraditional. Um, you know, so like, I think of Insecure, for example, um, on HBO, or, yeah, I mean, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Jane the Virgin, uh, Broad City, I think, is a rom-com totally. that's about friendship, or like yeah. Lady Bird is kind of a rom-com between a mother and a daughter in some way. So anyway, I just, I think that that genre is doing interesting and Mm-hmm. Um, hope giving yeah. things right now. And I think you don't actually have to look all that far for the void of what we now know to be problematic programming to be filled, right? So when we think about the Cosby show and when I think about the place that that held in my life when I was younger, you know, they were a, you know, upper middle class affluent family living in a brownstone in Brooklyn. I was in a middle class, upper middle class black family living in a brownstone in Brooklyn. But when you look back at a lot of those episodes, you can see a lot of the roots and tenets of the pound cake speech being played out by Cliff Huxtable. And then when you think about one of the other big family sitcoms for black folk that came around in that same era. You are going to talk about West Philadelphia, aren't you? I sure am. (laughs) You know... There's your antidote to that right there. I mean, I'm sure there were problematic aspects of that or things that we look back on that don't hold up. But The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Right, but there were other options. And Uncle Phil was another type of familial, you know, a paternal, loving character that had, you know, three kids, was doing well, and was able to represent that same thing. So I think when we have this concern about, well, if we cast off the problematics, who's going to fill their space? Lots of people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, and as a nerdy black kid (laughs) who had to grow up in the era of Steve Urkel, thank you, Carlton. Thank (laughs) you, Carlton, for existing. You were nerdy growing up? Don't do that. Just messing with you. <laughs> but you know what's interesting? One day, 20 years from now, our kids are going to be talking about how problematic all the shows that are right now not problematic are. It's amazing sort of thing for reasons that we can't even imagine. And they so will be creating like, wonderful yeah. new shows. And by the way, and by the way, which which is sort yeah. of an advertisement for forgiveness, cultural forgiveness hmm. in a way, which is that that's where you were then and that's where we are now and who the hell knows what tomorrow is going to be. Thank you. <laughs> hey, this, uh, I'll be at the Riverside Church next Sunday. And at Jillian's wedding. And at Jillian's <laughs> wedding. Oh, my God, I am. And I that am. was, to use an old NBC sitcom convention, one to grow on. With that, <laughs> let us turn to Keepers, the closing segment in which I ask um, all of our listeners and our guests what we've heard, read, listened to, watched, read, experienced recently that you do not want to forget. Um, this is one just to note, now that we are – about to wave goodbye to the end of cold weather in D.C. I'm going to bring uh, in a keeper from a listener in Minnesota, Owen, um, from the last snow to mark the passing of the seasons. Hi, Radio Atlantic team. My name is Owen Truesdell, and I live in St. Paul, Minnesota. And we just got a April blizzard, about 15 inches of snow in April. And my keeper is when I look out my window, I see my neighbors helping people push their cars, uh, parents pulling their kids on sleds, and dogs bounding through the snow. And as much of a pain in the butt as an April blizzard might be, 
I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. So that's my keeper. Oh, that was dear. Yeah. Right? Dogs bounding through the snow. Yeah, that's not what happens when it snows in D.C. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the opposite of that is. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes, there are several fist pumps for those of us who lived in Minnesota in the room. Having heard that. Megan, what would you like to keep? Well, I've been thinking about shows that I um, find soothing. Um, you know, when, when the news gets a lot and fast, etc. Um, things that I just turn to to um, to find a little bit of solace and peace in the world. So my keeper is one that I um, would want to keep pretty much every week. And that is The Great British Baking Show. Oh, is that I know good? some people perfect. in this room. People it is amazing. Talk, I, it is it. so exact perfect. It's very yes. earnest. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's always yeah. beautiful. I like Earnestness. Spirit of generosity. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Yes. That is the best thing. It's I love a good it's not cooking. mean. They're not mean at they're people. Not who the can't opposite cook. of mean. Oh, they're they're very nice encouraged. almost to a fault, but it's not quite. So mm. lovely. Okay. Oh. The Got other it. thing is just the emotional hook of when they show the illustrations of the yes. like the conception of the baked goods and then play that delightful little piece. I mean, I like and they're drawn goods, with such so love. It's yeah. So it's one just everything about it is is designed to be soothing and wonderful, and you will be in a better mood having watched it than when you started. Awesome. So that is my Just like this keeper. podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Jeffrey Goldberg, what is your keeper? Oh, did now when I get to tell my killing Ann Conway? <laughs> yes, it is. I'll let Jillian go first. Uh, I want yeah, people I to ha- hang on. Yeah, I, I want people to do, hang on. I was going to alternate genders. So go on, Jillian. My keeper is nerds geeking out at comic book movies. And this is because I recently recently (laughs) saw the latest Avengers movie. And this is going to comic book movies on opening night is very new for me. It is not something I have cared deeply about or was into. And I used to laugh at all the people who were dressed up and really, really into it. But on this last go around, just the sheer amount of joy that it brought people, <laughs> people walking around wearing Avengers t-shirts and having their Captain America shield mm. just for two to three hours. They were just so geeked to be there and excited <laughs> about entertainment and pop culture and what it looked like. And just like this bond of community that happened during it, before and after it. I don't know. It just felt really special and something that I'm not normally a part of. So that I would like wonderful. to keep that feeling. That is wonderful. It's more than a feeling. that's problematic Jeffrey what is your keeper so my keeper is the White House Correspondents Association (laughs) dinner because um, Kellyanne Conway came over and I gave her a First Amendment pin and I said Kellyanne why don't you wear this First Amendment pin and she said I'll wear this pin if you wear a Second Amendment pin. And I said, I'll wear the Second Amendment pin if you wear a Third Amendment pin and we were doing like full shtick which was awesome until I remembered that Kellyanne Conway actually might not like the First Amendment, so it was kind of more serious than that. Um, but she went with the joke for a while. I don't know why she showed up there. She doesn't like the press, um, and the press doesn't very much like her. But it was kind of one of those moments that you can't really describe uh, to people who don't go to this dinner, which, of course, is loathed. I understand it. But, you know, there was this moment for repartee, but it also showed me the limits of the possibility of repartee and mixing with people who really don't like what the press does 
And I just have I have a lot of feelings about that moment hmm. that I'll, I'll share uh, later. <laughs> we'll unpack on a later episode. Excellent. Right. In a very special episode of Radio Atlanta. <laughs> the more you know. <laughs> oh, this man. time it's personal. <laughs> so I was in Orlando recently uh, visiting my parents and uh, happened to catch um, a short marathon of the Golden Girls. Yes. Yeah. Love it. I'm never going to overturn the Golden Girls <laughs> my, my whole life. <laughs> um, the, just, I mean, the Golden Girls itself, um, four comedians at the height of their powers doing such amazing comedy. They are so good on that show. I was mesmerized. Ugh. But there's this one particular episode called Oh Shut Up Rose. <laughs> it's from the first episode of the third season. And the plot of the episode in part is that Blanche has given away Rose's beloved teddy bear to a young girl from the neighborhood who is like a Girl Scout type and is a do-gooder and is at the house and has come and is so sweet and loves this teddy bear so much and was so glad to have it. And Blanche gave it to her, not realizing that it was a priceless heirloom um, from Rose's youth, which she had kept with her from her days in St. Olaf. And so... Rose just knows that the teddy bear is lost. She does not know that it has been given away. And uh, the much of the episode is Blanche and Dorothy trying to bargain with this, this girl who reveals herself <laughs> to be increasingly cunning in her, um, uh, in her demands for returning this teddy bear. Much of the episode is Blanche and Dorothy trying to get it back from her and bargaining with her. Um, and the price becomes ever more expensive. Um, at one point, the girl cuts the teddy bear's ear off, <laughs> holds a water gun with red ink in it to the teddy bear's head and threatens, <laughs> threatens to, to bring an end to this bear. But at the end of the episode, um, Rose in, and Betty White in this very fantastic classic moment of sitcom performance and just one of the most delightful bits of physical comedy ever, um, gives a speech about sorrow and I'll play the speech. Get the door, Rose. So uh, all four Golden Girls are in the room. Dorothy, Blanche, Sophia, and Rose. They answer the door. You. Good morning. Well, kid, what do you want? I changed my mind. This, of course, is I was Jenny wrong Lewis. to ask for all those gifts. Dorothy, you see, I knew she'd come to her senses. I decided cash is better. <laughs> that way I can buy exactly what I want. And now the speech is coming up. I'll get my purse. No. Blanche, I'm not going to let you do that. I've been doing a lot of thinking, and if after all the years of love and companionship, Fernando and I are meant to part company, I'll just have to accept that. Time to time, life deals you an unfriendly hand. There's nothing you can do about it. I guess there's a lesson to be learned here. Sometimes life just isn't fair, kiddo. <laughs> I will link to the clip, a clip of this moment in the show notes. And I'm just going to say that I will never not be able to look at the way that Betty White shoves that gen young Jenny Lewis out the door <laughs> and think that it's the most priceless thing I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, it makes me laugh so hard every time. The Golden Girls. <laughs> a Golden Girls keeper. <laughs> there, that is just a testament to the fact that there is old entertainment that is still unproblematic. Um, I'm sure we can find problems with the Golden Girls. I was going to say, no, let's, let's not, not try. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> just thank them for being a friend <laughs> <laughs> and with that Megan Jillian Jeff thank you thank you thank Thanks, you Matt. till next time
That'll do it for this week's Radio Atlantic. Thank you to our guests, Megan Garber and Jillian White, in addition to my esteemed co-host, Jeffrey Goldberg, and our additional staff voices in order of appearance, Adrian Green, Caroline Mims-Nice, Andrew McGill, Tanvi Misra, and Julie Beck. This episode was produced and edited by Kevin Townsend with production support from Kim Lau. Catherine Wells is our executive producer of Atlantic Podcasts. Leave us your keeper. Send us a voicemail at 202-266-7600 with your answer to the question, what do you not want to forget? Feel free to tell us how we're doing. Again, 202-266-7600. Check us out at facebook.com slash radioatlantic and theatlantic.com slash radio. Catch our show notes in the episode description. And if you like what you're hearing, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe in your preferred podcast app. But most importantly, thank you for listening. May you find entertainment that grants you relief from all that you find problematic. We'll see you next week. This episode of Radio Atlantic is brought to you by Microsoft Copilot for Security completely integrated into your organization's security infrastructure. This AI companion is informed by 78 trillion signals daily to help you catch the threats others miss and reinforce your team's security posture efficiently. It synthesizes data from numerous sources and can analyze 500 lines of code in under a minute to put critical guidance at defenders' fingertips. It helps teams detect threats and take action in minutes instead of hours or days which can reduce attack investigation time by up to 40%. Copilot also serves as a key second pair of eyes, upskilling junior analysts with advanced capabilities, which frees up senior staff to focus on strategic priorities, all while safeguarding your data privacy. Learn more at microsoft.com slash copilot for security.